Turn again your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. For some of you, it won't be again, but uh, for those of you who have been with us uh, throughout this study, 1 John chapter 4. And before us today, as we've been working our way through this chapter of John's epistle, is one of the clearest passages of that letter. And it's also one of the most profound. And we begin reading at verse 7, and I'm going to read down through verse 10. So 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. May God bless our reading from his holy and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father, bless us now as we enter into the study of your word together. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us and use this time to prepare us to come and sit with joy at our Savior's table, to sit with faith at that table, to sit with thanksgiving, with trust, and with confidence in your grace to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Robert Layton, a good and godly Presbyterian minister of Scotland, who was renowned for his loving spirit, went home to be with his Lord and Savior on this day in 1684. Leighton once wrote these words, We have no way of expressing our love to God than in our converse or interaction with men and women, and in the works of love toward them. Certainly, that sweet affection of love to God cannot be consistent with malice and bitterness of spirit against our brethren. No, it sweetens and calms the soul and makes it all love every way. I think one of the most profound things he says here is that we have no way of expressing our love to God than in our converse or interaction with men and women. When we come to verse 7, which is where we'll begin this morning, it helps us sometimes in looking at things like this to reverse the order in which they're set, just to help us to think about them in a little different way. So you have here in verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if we just switch that around and look at it, from backwards forwards, it comes out to looking at it this way. Ask yourself, do you know God? Do you know him? Not do you have a perfect knowledge of him, but are you acquainted with him by faith? Uh, Do you have a personal and real relationship with him through the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know him? If you do, you're born of him. If you know him in that way, then you have been born of God, John says. 
And if you are reborn of him, then you will love. That's the result of that. So do you know him? If you do, then you're born of him. And if you're born of him, then you will love. (coughs) It's the natural outgrowth. You'll be loving others because love is from God. And if you're born of him, his love will reign in your heart and it will exhibit itself in your affection for the brethren. Samuel Pierce said, As the apostle had declared that God is love, that it is the whole of God, his nature, blessedness, and perfection, he loves himself, his son, and spirit, his essence is a fountain of love. And love is of him. He's the fountain through which all love comes. And so the final point is, if all that's true up to this point, then lastly, then you ought to be loving. You ought to be doing it. If all the rest is true, if you know God, if you're born of him, and you have love from him, then that love ought to be manifesting itself, showing itself. If you are the beloved of God indeed, you ought to be loving others. It's the perfect reaction from the heart of those who have been loved by him. It is, as Leighton said, the way we show our love for him or to him. Now, when John says all of this that you see here in this section, he's quoting Jesus again. He's drawing everything he's saying here from the words of Jesus that John himself recorded by the Holy Spirit in his gospel, which, was, uh, which is the gospel of John, which comes earlier in the, in the Bible, in the, book, in the order of the books. And he recorded this in chapters 13, 14, and 15. And we don't have time to read the whole section this morning, obviously, but I would encourage you to do that to look at those chapters, John 13, 14, and 15, in light of what we're talking about this morning. But for our purposes, I'm just going to quote a few verses from each chapter. Beginning, first of all, with John chapter 13. This is verses 34 and 35. Jesus is speaking, and here's what he says. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that's chapter 13. In chapter 14, verses 23 and 24, John records Jesus as saying this. Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, He will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. And then finally, in chapter 15, Jesus says this, beginning in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Now when you see the testimony of all that from the mouth of Jesus Christ, 
you can understand very easily why John says what he does in his epistle when he talks about the fact that love is from God. And if you're born again, if you really belong to the Lord, if you know him, then you not only have love, but you will show that love because love is from him. John sums all this up at the end of his epistle, uh, at the end of this chapter, rather, as the chapter continues, in verse uh, chapter 4 verse 21 where he says this commandment we have from him whoever loves god must also love his brother and that summary really picks up exactly what jesus was saying in in where it's recorded for us in john 13 14 and 15 now we're going to have an occasion to expand on this whole concept as we move forward in this chapter Uh, But we're not going to do that this morning because I want to spend uh, the remainder of our time looking particularly at verse 9. I'm not saying that what we've talked about here is not important. We're going to come back and and expand that a little bit. But I want to concentrate on verse 9 because of our preparation for the Lord's table this morning. Verse 9 here, 1 John 4, 9 says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. Pierce, who is a Bible commentator, says this, If God will love, he must have an object for his love. The object must have existence before him or he cannot exercise his love. Thereon, it must therefore be that Christ the God-man, and the elect in him must have existed in the divine mind as an object of everlasting love before all time. What we have here is John calling your attention, beloved, to the great revelation that God has made of his love among men and women. You can think of it as if someone were to say to John, You say God loves me, but what's the proof? You say God loves me, how do I know that? How do I know he loves me? What has he done to prove that love? And here's John's answer. In this, he says, the determined, deliberate judgment of God to love you has been made evident. But it's not in these things. It's not that he pretends you're good when you're not. That's not how he shows you love. That you're not really good, but he pretends like you are. So that he can love you. It's not that he makes deals with you and shows you favor in exchange for promises. Where you say, Lord, if you'll just get me out of this trouble... I'll go to church every day for the next 10 years. That's not the kind of love he shows. It's not that he makes you wealthy and healthy according to your will and your fancy. That's not the kind of love. That's not the way he displays his love. It's not by his violating all righteousness and justice, by letting everyone enjoy heaven in the end. It's none of those things, John says. The proof is manifested, it is made clearly evident in this, 
that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, says John. And this is the evidence, the manifestation of God's love for you. That not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment for our sins. And three things, there are many more than three, but we want to look at three things this morning that highlight, highlight this manifestation of his love. First, John says here that he sent or gave his only son. There is none, beloved, like the Lord Jesus Christ. Your Savior is unique in every possible way. From his place in the Godhead to his character and his attributes. He is very God of very God, very man of very man. He's not one of many, and he's not even one of a few. He is, as the Son of God, the only Son of God in that sense. Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 13, this, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. It's that son. The one described like that, that he sent into the world that you might live. This glory that Paul gives to Jesus by God the Holy Spirit clearly sets him apart from all others. Jesus is the only Son of God in this holy and unique sense that John is referring to here. One day, you may recall, Jesus took James and John and Peter up into a mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of Christ's face changed and his clothing became dazzling white. We read about it in Luke chapter 9 and beginning in verse 30. And behold, Luke says, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully aware or awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Jesus was found alone. So here on this mountain 
Elijah and Moses appear with Jesus. And there are those who make the contention that Jesus was just a great prophet like Moses was. He just came in a different time in the spirit of Jesus like Moses himself was. But this scene puts that to rest. There's no correlation here between the two. Jesus is the one whose countenance has changed. And when the Savior said, or when God from heaven says, This is my son, my chosen one, hear him, and the cloud clears, there's only one standing there. And it's your Savior. There's no one like him. He is the only Son of God in that sense. This is the one, God's only and beloved Son, that was sent by him into this cruel and abusive world the haunt of Satan and his demons, the playground and realm of sinful men and women to redeem those he loved from sin and from death. As we said last week, God in heaven gave his greatest and best for the worst. In Hebrews 2.10 we read, For it was fitting that he, that is the Savior, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And this brings us to the second thing that highlights the character of this love. It's highlighted by the fact that he sent his only son, this son, to die for you. The second thing is that he did so that we might live through him. We were watching an interview with a diving expert after the news of the debris of the Ocean Gate submarine being found near the sunken Titanic this week. And it was a former Navy man, and he made a comment, and he used an illustration just as the interview was closing. And the interviewer missed it, I think, uh, because they were looking for the, the next thing to say. She had asked if death had come instantaneously. And the experienced submariner replied, yes. And the reporter turned away saying that she was glad to hear that and talking over the man's final explanation. And he was saying that at that depth, the implosion would have been instantaneous. And then he held up a small square about this big. And he said that in seconds, the crushing pressure would have reduced them to about this size. And the picture disappeared off the screen. It's sobering, isn't it? Before they could even think about it, further experts have said that the mind could not have processed what was going on before they would have been reduced to that little block, that little square. They would even had a sense of it, couldn't have. By the sheer force of a natural law, a living, breathing, active person is reduced to something smaller than your phone. And it's worth reflecting on the fact that death can come that quickly and with that finality for any human being. As Paul says in Romans 5.12, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
Death reigns because of sin. And all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's the judgment of the judge of all the earth, God himself. Richard Baxter says, death is from ourselves, but life is from the author and Lord of life. And here, love is manifested, that God sent his only son, that through him, you and I might live. This same God revealed the nature of his love by sending his son to taste death for all who believe in order that we might have life. He came that you and I might have life and have it more abundantly, as the scripture says. As pinching and dry and empty as death brought on by sin is, the life brought on by Jesus Christ to the believer is infinitely more free, infinitely more fertile, infinitely more full. In Revelation 21.6 we read, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And that's what he did. God sent his son to die for us that through him we might have access to the spring of the water of life. But what is the abundant nature of this life that we have in Christ? We were discussing this in our adult Sunday school class uh, the last few months and also in Sunday school. And after a number of lessons on the subject, we realized we were only scratching the surface of these things. One minister of the gospel described heaven as your escape to the happiness of the saints, to the society of angels, to the festival of celestial joy, to the delights of contemplation, to the presence of God, there to see and taste the riches of his goodness. So part of what highlights the display of this love is that God sent his only son, there's none other like him, He sent him to redeem us for the purpose of giving us life and giving it to us more abundantly, bringing us into this happiness of the saints. And the third thing that highlights it is that it is a free act on his part. He was not compelled by anything in you or me or by anything done by you or me. When Isaiah said that the Messiah, when he came, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him, the Messiah, Jesus, was simply bearing our image as we appear to him. And yet despite that image, despite that appearance, he loved us and he gave himself for us. There was no love in us and nothing lovely about us. In fact, the very rejection of all that is lovely in God renders men and women repulsive in the eyes of God. The very fact that men and women don't acknowledge it, the very fact that men and women look out on the creation where the wisdom and the goodness and the power of God is so beautifully displayed and then turn from him and reject that witness, that makes them repulsive in his sight. And yet, he loved us. Just think of how you react when you encounter someone 
who hates beauty or hates order or who despises all that's good? Who wants to spend time with a willful, disrespectful, and rebellious child? Who wants to make sacrifices for the ungrateful and the petulant? And the answer is, beloved, someone with a love that passes understanding, whose thoughts are not your thoughts, nor his ways your ways. The one who cries out saying in Isaiah chapter 1 verses 5 through 6, Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Someone who speaks like that, he's the one who sets his love on the rebellious and the petulant and gives them life. In Isaiah 55 Verse 6, the Lord says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. It is the Lord himself. Beloved, by sending his only son who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.9, not because of your works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus the ages before the ages began. For when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works that we have done or works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 22, verses 13 through 17, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. This is the one who shows his love and affection towards those who have no love and are unlovable. And in that, the love of Christ is displayed. The love of God is displayed. 
the love of God is the good pleasure of his will, an act of his incomprehensible mind, an act in Christ, God-man, in whom he loved the persons of the elect, in whom he chose them, in whom he blessed them with all spiritual blessings, in whom he predestinated them to the enjoyment of all the blessedness contained in immediate communion with the Trinity, in the person of the God-man, in whom he accepted their persons and shone forth on them in him, in and with all the full blaze of his own uh, intentional love towards them. This is the invitation that he sweetly and genuinely offers to even the worst of sinners. And he offers it not looking for any good in them, but because of his own goodness, his mercy, his love, a love that is shown by no other. It's a love that belongs to him alone. So in this, God has manifested, made evident, displayed his love to you and me, that he sent his only son, that through him, you and I, by grace, might have life. That is a display of love, and it's displayed before us this morning at this table, where the sacrifice of Christ is set before us again afresh, not on a cross, but in these elements, to remind us of what he did for us when we were without love and unlovable. Let's pray. Father in heaven, please bless your word to us now as we turn to our Savior's table. Lord, as we bow here before you this morning, we, we confess who are we to have known such love. To be loved like this. To have this manifest, manifestation of love displayed in our hearts so that we might know you. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be filled with thanksgiving, with a sober and yet joyful thankfulness. We thank you for sending your Son to be the propitiation for our sins, the payment for our sins, that through his suffering and death we might live. We pray, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who is without that hope, they may just hear this simple testimony of the gospel that God in heaven, you, Lord, sent your only son who was like no other, beloved of the Father, glorious in his person, sent his son, sent your son, that through him they might have life. This is the day for the confession of sin. This is the day for putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the day of salvation. May it be heard in the ears of any who need to hear it. And may all of us who have heard rejoice in what is now ours in Christ Jesus. And may we be thankful for this inexpressible love shown to us, the unlovely and the unloving. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.